0: I'm fueled by progression. I'm fueled by like, what is the next thing that's going to push me? And to me, in some ways, the bigger it is, the more it's going to push me out of my comfort zone. I don't ever want to feel like I can do it. You know, I always say to people like, you want opportunities that feel like, holy shit, I don't know if I can do it, right? Because that's where the growth is.
1: Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into GRIP. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks. You and your marketing guy yeah, were doing Dave a podcast Gerhard. together. Yeah. yeah. And the funny thing is, it was hard and you didn't even have guests half the, sh- no. Half the episodes. No. no guests. But like, isn't there something to be said around just like doing anything mm-hmm. every week yeah. that consistently? Yeah. Isn't company building mm-hmm. kind of the same shit where same shit. every week, even the podcast, I look, there's a set of metrics and I'm like, all right, well, if I don't do it this week, then I'm going to let people down. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to let myself down. And so you work backwards from like, how am I going to do this every single week? When you're doing a company, isn't it kind of the most extreme version of that? Yeah, 100%. Just every week, this, this which one. is probably, to be fair, why you're chilling right now. Is yeah. that like? Is that like? Like? <laughs> oh my god, he just keeps going. going. I mean, I mean, no. But in all seriousness, how many companies can you start before you're like, okay, the accountability yeah. of doing something. Mm-hmm. This is not weekly, day in and day out. Yeah. Doesn't that feeling loom over you of 100%, just knowing? A hundred percent. is probably why
0: I'm in this mode right now, which I never thought I could be, and no one who knows me thought I could ever stop operating. No one believed it. So far, it's been a year. For me, it was really just like the only way that I can do anything is what you're doing right now. 1,000% in. I'm either in or out. I can't do anything 90%. I can't do 50%. I have to be like extreme seven days a week. All I can think about, just be obsessed about it. That's the only way I can operate. That plus, most of the time, I'm willing to just grind through anything. Right and just like more grind, more grind, more grind. I think after five companies, I was finally like, Fuck, "I'm tired." Yeah, I'm tired a little bit, which is crazy, embarrassing to not Don't, say don't out take loud. this the
1: wrong way, but like, how are you actually spending your day? <laughs> like, what are you? Like, I keep what, here at getting asked this. Like, what how are, do you like, fill your Seriously, day? seriously don't, do you not? Seemingly all of the highest achieving guests Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that I've had on the show are Mm -hmm. all the hardest charging. Mm -hmm. And they all have this really weird relationship with the idea of not pushing hard, Mm -hmm. which on the one hand is a paradise in their mind where you get to just like not have that feeling looming over your head. (laughs) However, on the other (laughs) hand, it's this idea that your purpose is just gone in a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. A year in, when you wake up in the morning, are you over the panic attack of what am I going to do today?
0: No, it's increasing. Come on. Day by day. Come on. You're kidding. It's like a drum roll. It's increasing. Boom, boom, boom. I'm just, uh, I'd say, you know, for the the first quarter of it first, I kind of distracted myself. I joined three boards to help out some other companies. So distracted myself with that, you know, one small public company board, one private, and then one philanthropic board. And the last one is the fun one. And then did just an insane amount of traveling. Which I had never really done before outside of work. So, personal travel, like never really existed in my life. It was just work, work travel. And so, I did a lot of that, distracted myself with that for a bit, and some other projects, bought a house, you know, moved places, did all that stuff. It's really in the last three to six months that it's really like, Every morning, I'm just like, what am I doing? Does it feel like,
1: does it, you use the word distraction. Yeah. Does it feel like you're distracting yourself 100% from another? Yeah. And the drumbeat, can you explain that? What do you mean? The the voice in your head?
0: Yeah, the voice in my head every day, just like, boom, what are you doing? What's going on? One day behind, another day behind. And is it like,
1: uh, is that a feeling of like uh, laziness that's creeping up on you? Like, what's the actual feeling?
0: No, no, not lazy. Well, It probably looks like laziness, but I'd say, you know, one thing that I would always say to people is that I'm default lazy. And so most people that, you know, knew me or know me would never believe that because they're like, you're the most intense, like most whatever. It's like, no, it's I'm kind of like a lion sleeping. And then it's only when gazelle runs by that i'm just like 1000 percent in the chase right so i have to be in the chase like so i would artificially create things or like put myself on a schedule put myself on a goal do whatever create these like constraints that would force me into focus my intensity right and then i would just go a thousand percent but without those by default i would just appear lazy i'm always researching always doing that kind of stuff so to me it's not that it feels like laziness it feels like i don't have I don't know what my purpose is. Yeah. I don't know what I'm driving to. I don't know what the next thing is because the thing, the overarching obsession that I've had is progression. Yeah. In any form, right? But like, let's say professional progress, just getting better every day. Yeah. And I don't feel like I'm getting better. I feel like I'm flat.
1: And even in a year, you haven't been able to find something else that gives you this feeling of progress and.
0: Some things. Yeah, but they're distractions, right? So like I got really into art. So I joined an art museum board. It's called the Whitney here in New York. I didn't know anything about art. So I really dove into art and helping artists and collecting yeah. and donating to museums and doing all that kind of stuff. So that from an intellectual curiosity standpoint, like is really, really interesting. Yeah. But it's not I'm not progressing. I'm yeah. not getting anywhere.
1: Yeah. Myself. There's this funny thing in my head mm-hmm. with you where mm-hmm. You're, like, currently living high society in New York, okay? Just listen to me. Just hear me out for a second. You know, you're doing the Whitney stuff, like, you're in the art scene, like, um, we're in this beautiful place, but is maybe part of the drumbeat Mm -hmm. in your head that, like, you're not actually that guy? Is it a little ironic to you that you're living this life, but the people that have met you over the last year, they don't know the DC Mm -hmm. that's a fucking masochist, Mm -hmm. that actually doesn't play status games because all he does is zero to one companies Mm -hmm. that like most of the people in these scenes have never heard of before. There's gotta be some cognitive dissonance between this idea that This is what you've always wanted and should be doing. This Mm -hmm. is what everybody in New York City is working towards. Yet Mm -hmm. all you want to do is go back and get your nose to the grindstone again. Thousand
0: percent, man. Oh my God. You just psychoanalyzed me so (laughs) quick. It's so easy, huh? Uh, But yeah, I am living that life right now that I think people aspire to. For me, it's kind of, it's great. It's interesting, you know, but all I want to do is like grind. That's what's interesting to me. And that's, Very disconnected from the people that I spend time with. Like you said, they don't know what I've done, what I do, what fuels me, that kind of stuff. It's so alien to them. They don't know these companies. They don't know the zero-to-one kind of thing. And so I'm living this thing. I'm kind of like a observer, you know, like I'm observer, like I'm observing it. I'm like, oh, this is interesting. Learning about it. Some of it is really cool. But, you know, I think I've always had this feeling my whole life of being like an outsider, right? Just like I never feel settled. I never feel like, oh, this is my tribe. These are my people. This Mm. is my group because I've always been the outsider. I grew up in New York City, but I grew up Puerto Rican, Ecuadorian, was born in the South Bronx. And then my mom moved us to Queens to get us out of this like war-torn looking crazy place uh, that was awful. So I grew up in an entirely Jewish neighborhood, right? So I was the outsider, right? And Mm -hmm. then, you know, like in tech in the early days, I was the outsider too. Like everything was the outsider. To my friends who were not in tech, I was an outsider. I kind of feel comfort in this now, feel comfort in being an outsider, kind of like being not easy to define. But then that also leaves me with like never feeling like I have a tribe, right? Mm -hmm. Like what is my tribe? Mm
1: -hmm. What are the things that have surprised... Because I'm telling you, every guest wants to be doing this. (laughs) and And... What are the surprising things? Mm-hmm. Not like, oh, I'm in better shape. Mm-hmm. Oh, I have time. Mm-hmm. Whatever. Like, I see my family more. Mm-hmm. What are the like surprising benefits, if any, that you have found <laughs> to this time?
0: Oh, my God. What are the surprising benefits to it? They're all the obvious ones that you mentioned. You know, time with family, traveling, personal, all that kind of stuff. But everyone knows that. I think surprising is... And it was only temporary, right? It was only in the first half of the last year. So it's only lasted for six months so far, but being able to be okay with myself and not doing anything, which I never thought I would. I always have this itch. Like I could not stop doing something. And so to me, it was amazing that, that period of like feeling of I'm not doing anything. I'm okay. You know, everything's okay. I'm doing it. It doesn't matter. I wake up tomorrow. I'm not doing anything. I don't have a goal that I'm chasing. I never thought I would have that peace, You know, for that, it only it only lasted for about six months before it came back. It's come back now. But, you know, that was surprising to me. I think being able to do some stuff that I've been doing In your kind of, as you said, society, but in art world and helping artists and like helping people create stuff like, you know, emerging artists, you know, helping them like break into the art world. Right. One thing that I've been passionate about doing is helping Latin artists break into major museums. Mm -hmm. So I helped one. It was a complicated process, but got one of his works into the Met, the Metropolitan Museum. I'm working on another one and getting him to another major museum. Being able to take those skills that we both have cool. in this totally different world, yeah. right? Of being able to not be afraid of coming in and like being a troublemaker and like forcing things to happen and all that kind of stuff is alien in their world part of the reason they couldn't break in is because it's a very disconnected kind of almost Hollywood system. And I was able to just like jump in and get that person to talk to that person to talk to that person to that person, to that person and then just force it to happen. We're going to make this happen, Yeah, right? Something that if you were to look at it or anyone in our world would look at it, it would be very simple, right? we just like get everyone to make mm-hmm. this thing happen. But to them, it was mind-blowing, right? And so that artist, he was, he's in his 60s. He's been an artist for a very long time, very well-known artist, but can never break that one ceiling.
1: DC, you and I went on a walk. Mm-hmm. It was supposed to be 30 minutes, probably ended up being an hour and a half or yeah. more, walking down the West Side Highway. And I remember walking with you thinking, holy f- Mm-hmm. I have to put a microphone in front of this guy. This is like this is like an encyclopedia of entrepreneurship. One of the things that I brought up to you during that point was, hey, I know you're doing a bunch of advising right now. One of our entrepreneurs really looks up to you. Mm-hmm. Can I connect you? You're like, F- no. And I'm like, what? Why not? And you were like, I hate it. I realized I hate it. Mm-hmm. So in this last year, is one of the areas that you've tried to find some juice in, mm-hmm. similar to helping artists is helping entrepreneurs. Yes. And does that kind of, is in some way that almost more frustrating to you because it's a reminder of all the things, like why you should be in the arena. Yes. And like this control part of you is like, oh man, I can't tell one more person what I think they should and shouldn't do and they not listen to me anymore. Like, did it just hurt you more?
0: It's a great recap of the last year. So, you know, I did dive into helping more entrepreneurs and join some boards to try to really help. I knew going in that this was not an area that I loved, but I was going to force myself, you know, during this time to like dive into it. And, you know, discovery is obvious. Discovery is like, I hate it. I hate doing it because I'm too much of a control freak, too much of an operator. And it's hard to give advice even to people who are asking for it and not having that closed feedback loop. Maybe they take the advice, looks like they never took the advice, like I don't know why I'm talking. And just having the feeling of I want to jump in and just like make it happen. Mm -hmm. I want to jump in this and I don't want to give advice. I want to like get in there with them and like make this happen, Mm -hmm. right? And just giving this advice and being disconnected. And there's so many people, advisors and board members who are great at this. To me, it feels so alien. I can't do it. Like, mm-hmm. it really, really bothers me. And the more time I spend trying to do it, the more frustrated I get. I want to jump in. I want to take over the, whatever, the project or the company or the whatever and just like run it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. In the last year, let's say six months, mm-hmm. when the drumbeat started, why haven't you, Darn why it. haven't you I, done it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why haven't you, Matt, why haven't you made the leap yet? Is it ideas?
0: Uh, no, no, it's not ideas. I think it's probably like a wealth. Uh, the idea part is easy. It's not team because I have, you know, the top people that I've worked with. All that are probably the, f-ing calling you every week. like, us like, go. Let's go. What let's are you go. waiting for? Coach, come on. <laughs> yeah, let's yeah, go. Yeah. Put me in. So it's not either of those things. I think it's kind of like um, whatever this kind of realization of like it has to be bigger than what I've done before. So why? like why? I don't know.
1: And has every one of them been bigger? Yeah. Sequentially. Yeah, like degree. Drift got bought for a, billion-ish yeah, by Vista, a billion ish, yeah. Vista, over a billion, yeah, yeah. And then the one before that got bought by HubSpot, mm-hmm. and that ended up being very big, huge, yeah. Maybe you made even more money, mm-hmm. ironically, mm-hmm. on that one mm-hmm. than mm-hmm. you did the it's Vista very than, yeah. than the Drift one. Yeah, it's like a you hear a snowboarder talk about just like the next trick. Mm-hmm. You know, if you watch the Tony Hawk documentary, yeah, yeah. like just like trying to get the, the next one. the spin. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm reminds me of that a little yeah, bit. Yeah.
0: Because I, the, otherwise I'm like, what am I doing? Because I'm fueled by progression. I'm fueled by like, what is the next thing that's going to push me? And to me, in some ways, the bigger it is, the more it's going to push me out of my comfort zone. I don't ever want to feel like I can do it. You know, I always say to people like, you want opportunities that feel like, holy shit, I don't know if I can do it. Right. Because that's where the growth is.
1: One of the things that I hear from multi-time entrepreneurs is this idea of was I lucky? There's a lot of times where they get really in their head on the next one or don't even do the next one mm-hmm. because there's this imposter syndrome that they're a fraud. Yeah, you yeah, know yeah, that yeah, they were yeah. a part of the great market with a rising tide mm-hmm. that they just had a slot in. Mm-hmm. That feeling five later mm-hmm. has to go away, right?
0: Yeah, I'm not played by that. I mean, because most of mine were a grind. They weren't like this, like, you know, magic rides. You know, everyone's is a grind, but there are some magic ride ones. And it's just been grind after grind after grind. So to me, I don't have the imposter syndrome. I think it's having too much optionality and feeling like the next thing has to be bigger. And it's like, should I start a company? Should I start a fund? Should I buy a company? Mm -hmm. Should I, you know, do something in between? Should I do the ultimate thing that every uh, serial entrepreneur wants to do, which is like, I'm just going to incubate a bunch of companies. Mm -hmm. Like you have like too many different options now of just like, I can do all these different things. Right. And so I see part of that tension in me and I've seen that in other entrepreneurs like me of just like, there's too many options. Yeah, Right.
1: Yeah. When we went on our walk, I had to be at least six months ago, the summer, right? It was summer. You had that tension mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. has that not been resolved it has been resolved so
0: now for me it's a hundred percent a company
1: uh, dude you're fucking nuts yeah. i was thinking this guy is out of his mind if he thinks he's gonna buy a, what, yeah. what are you crazy <laughs> like i was thinking is this guy gonna walk into somebody else's culture just no, no chance. Way. No, no way chance.
0: no so starting a company and so then now my the last month has been like all right the way that i always start is i have to start with a name Right. As stupid as that sounds, but there actually there's a whole bunch of I was talking to my friend, this amazing entrepreneur, Mark Lore. He's like, Oh, I'm exactly the same thing. Like same way. I cannot start until I have a name. Really? Yeah. In my mind, no matter even if I know what I'm gonna do, I have to have a name. Okay. Cause then a name to me like makes it real. Like then I can start to think about, okay, what's the brand gonna be like? And then I start to think about being public about like, I'm working on X, you know, okay. drift, whatever. So I've been uh, trying to buy a name. And so I bought one name. I bought a name. You did. It just finalized today. I actually got You're the kidding. email from, yeah. Go Can't, daddy.
1: Can you say the name or are you, is that going to curse it?
0: No, it won't, won't curse the name. The, cur- the name is Ray and it's R-E-Y. So in Spanish it means king and me it has a lot of different connotations. Too. Okay, and
1: yeah. as of today, are you stamping this as like official marking point of you going to go do this thing?
0: Yeah, right here.
1: I'm catching Log. you on. I'm catching you on a good time.
0: <laughs> I'm you. I just got the GoDaddy think. Seriously, I had just had, yeah, I bought it on auction and so it took and a while. Do
1: you know what the company is going to be about?
0: Yes. Yes. It's very, you know, all my companies are in the marketing sales tech world. You so know, so walk, it's a reinvention of Walk me through there.
1: this process in your head from mm-hmm. today. Okay. You have the name. Yep. I have a name. What's the order from there?
0: Name, go public about the name, which I just did yep, today. The, right here Market. on this podcast, Yep, uh, nowhere else, you know, but in the past it would be, if it wasn't a podcast then it'd be on LinkedIn, on social media on whatever, mm-hmm. just being public about the name. Cause then to me, that, like I mentioned before, that starts the constraint. Now I'm trapped, right? So now I'm like, now I've said that I'm gonna do it. Now there is a name. Now there are gonna be questions about what's going on. So, like, I have to trap myself, yeah. right? Yeah, it makes makes sense. Like, it's kind of like, you know, I always have that mental image of like, I have to burn the boats every time. Like, okay, now I'm on the island. I name the island. I burn the boats. There's only one way out. We gotta get out. Now it starts. Next step, all right, team. Gotta get the first crew that's going to start four or five people that are going to start this thing with me, which I have a, in my head, but I have to have that conversation with them. You haven't talked to them. I told them I'm, something's coming, but I haven't told them when. And they're like, I don't care what it is. Let's do it. Let's do it. I have the luxury now of like, they're among the best people that I've worked with. For and sure. I love being with them. Yeah. So it's like, yes, yeah, hundred percent. So recruit the team and then we start working on the idea. We start working on the product.
1: Yep. When you think about like burning the bridges, mm-hmm. what bridges are you burning?
0: Optionality is the big one of like not having to which I've been in that phase for the last year of not having to commit, not saying I'm doing anything, not being public about what the next thing is. Yeah. You know, just like basically putting this expectation, even if there isn't a public expectation, even if I think that I'm only imagining that in my mind now there's an expectation. Totally. Well there is. is. Like, I Fuck. think there is. Okay.
1: Do you think about trade-offs of like all right? Here's what I'm going to have to give up as a consequence Mm -hmm. of
0: this commitment. Yes, 100%. You do? Yeah, 1,000%. Laura, who walked in, is my fiance, has only known me really in this phase of not being 100% in. And she's been encouraging me of like, yeah, go do the thing. Go do it. I'm like, you don't know me. You don't know me during this phase. It will be a completely different person. Yeah. And she's like, Oh yeah, this is great. And then, you know, my even my daughter's 18. <laughs> she's in uh in school at Fordham and she was overheard this discussion. She's and she turned to Laura and was like, You don't know him when he's doing this. Yeah. <laughs> my daughter's like, Don't start a company. Yeah. This is way more fun for her. Yeah. Right. Cause we travel, we do all that stuff. She's like, Oh my God, he's a completely different
1: animal. Yeah. Right. And yeah.
0: so uh, when once he's unleashed, like I'm gone. I'm 100% in. You can't put it back in the box.
1: But don't you think that your fiance also sees the metaphorical drums yes, in your head? Yes, 1,000%. You know, like yeah. she knows you. Yeah, and sees she, me
0: cleaning the she, kitchen counter exactly, 30 times a day. Exactly.
1: <laughs> like <laughs> she can see the lights are not fully on. 100%. Behind your eyes. Mm-hmm. And the trade-off, I think, that a partner or a spouse has mm-hmm. is that you are finding some higher calling that you need to fulfill. Yep. And if they can encourage you to do that, then it's better than you moping around all day <laughs> trying to figure out like which piece of art you're going to buy. He you just know? keeps coming at me. <laughs> he just <laughs>
0: keeps coming God. at me. Oh, Daggers just be. like, that's oh my God, right in. And then, okay, so
1: then can I keep going on this thread of <laughs> yeah, like the company? keep going. Are you going to do it in person? Like have you thought, are you going to get an office? Like how are you going to do it's that? It's the hardest
0: thing I've been struggling with because I think in the early days you have to be, for me, I don't know how to do it without all being together. I've had many partially remote companies. Drift is a remote company at this point. But it's hard when you're in that initial, you know, just iteration phase to be disconnected. The struggle that I have is that most of my team, early team that I want to work with are everywhere at this point. This concentration's in Boston, San Francisco, but there are other people- With other like places.
1: families and kids and stuff Families too. and kids. Like and You stuff. guys aren't so young like, bucks anymore no, that, no. that can just up their lives. Yeah,
0: yeah, I have some young bucks that'll bring in, but like they're in different places too. That's the biggest next step that I'm just like, okay, I have to resolve this thing. You know, I like work being physical in the early days, but how do we do it with this kind of distributed team? Do you have any words of wisdom? Well, I mean, I've been talking to a lot of people about it, but it's like, there's no answer.
1: If you truly want to burn the bridges, Mm -hmm. going back to your line of thinking, I just don't know if you can recreate the feeling Mm -hmm. of being together. Mm -hmm. And I think that especially when you're at the peak of success that you and the people ostensibly that have been here are, Mm -hmm. I think that you have to get grounded no yeah. pun intended <laughs> yeah, 100%. you know back to the reality that you're nobody again mm-hmm. if that makes sense mm-hmm. and i think when you're like okay one more dig when you're like in the fancy off like office up here in your place it's almost like a disconnected Reality, so from What entrepreneurship is, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Again, I, I'm just spitballing here with you, but like you as the leader of the company, mm-hmm. want to be leading, mm-hmm. and I think that being in the trenches with people, there's no discounting that. No. That's my opinion. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I believe in remote work. Like mm-hmm. I think this idea, just to put a bow on it, that. Even you, five times later, are still fighting against the odds. Mm -hmm. The odds are stacked against you. You're scrapping and clawing for every advantage that you can get. Mm -hmm. And you can find advantage through how much money you raise, you Mm -hmm. can find advantages through the people that you recruit, Mm -hmm. through the markets that you pick, through the types of product decisions that you make. This in my mind is just another advantage. So in your head, you're optimizing for all these things that are gonna lead to an increased probability of success. Mm -hmm. Then like this is a very obvious one to me that is gonna lead to a pretty extraordinary increased probability in success. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how in practice that works. Yeah, you're right, like people are everywhere. But if you don't start now, the genie's out of the bottle and Mm -hmm. you're never going to get people. If the first four or five people aren't together, at least in some reasonable frequency.
0: Yeah, the rest are never. 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 And I think, you know, Do you agree with that, by the way? 100%. Yeah. There's no way. You set the model at the very beginning, right? And so everyone emulates that model and it becomes harder and harder. That's the easy group to actually get together. It's afterwards becomes harder. We all know this as people in this world as entrepreneurs, the operators and stuff like you have to get yourself back in, as you were saying, in that uncomfortable position, right? You got to go back to the beginning, right? And so we've all seen these cautionary tales where there was jobs in Next, you know, going and getting fancy offices and spending mm-hmm. forever and not shipping and then having to go back or John Romero at like uh, when he left id Software, Doom, fancy offices, all that stuff. Or even in fiction with, you know, Rocky 4, right? Mm-hmm. I got to go back into back scrap workout in the barn, you know, yeah. lifting rocks, yeah. running up mountains, right? Because in Rocky 3, I got too posh, too rich, too yeah. whatever and yeah. so like, you know, I wasn't paying attention, I lost. And so we We've all seen this story before, but it's like, even though we see that we've seen the story before in fiction and in reality, it's the easiest freaking trap to fall into. It's so easy because it's right there. It's so comfortable.
1: When you think about the people that you're going to hire for the first four or five, what roles would you hire for? Like, what do you, where's your head at there?
0: Well, it's engineers and designers. We got to build the product, but they're the people that I've worked with that are not afraid to do everything themselves, who can play multiple roles, don't really care about titles, whatever. They know, they kind of been through it before, so they know whatever they start doing in the beginning is going to change, it's going to morph. They're going to do something later on. And, you know, one thing that you get when you've done this enough is that you start to understand that there are people that are right for different phases, right? And I think, like, one thing that took me a long time to figure out is like there's skill and will, but then there's also like stage. There can be like hard skills that someone has and like the soft skills that they have, but there's also a stage that they may be appropriate for and that they may be happiest in. And so I'm kind of opting for those people that are happy in this stage, happy in this kind of the unknown stage where there's a whole another crew of people that are great for the next stage who would not be good in the unknown phase. So it's really those makers who are, Versatile and are okay with not knowing and having to figure out and having to walk in the desert for countless days before we make our way out. Yeah. And that's the kind of picture that I would always think in the beginning before you really get to scale the product market fit is like, I would always say that it's like walking through the desert every day and working as hard as you can and not having any idea because you cannot see anything on the horizon. If you're getting out of the desert or you're going deeper into this desert. That kind of crisis that you have to try to figure it out is the hard part in the beginning. And then, you know, once you hit scale product market fit, you're really at the base of Everest. You know, you're probably going to die on your way up, but at least you can see there's a mountain. You know, you're not just wandering aimlessly trying to find your way out. Now you have a map. Yeah. So
1: how do you think about fundraising? Any venture firm, given Mm -hmm. your track record, Mm -hmm. would throw as much money as you will take Mm -hmm. at you right now. Yeah. Do you take it up front? Do you sequence it? Again, I go back to like, if you were actually a first-time entrepreneur, Mm -hmm. should you act like it? Mm -hmm. You know, like should you only take money as you de-risk different sequences of the business? Mm -hmm. Or if the money and capital are available to give you a real run, (laughs) like what do you do? Yeah,
0: it all depends, right? It all depends. You know, I Drift, we kind of had somewhat of this luxury. We were going to bootstrap it ourselves, fund it ourselves, Elias and I, and then we ended up taking... $15 million in a Series A from CRV and General Catalyst. And the only reason that we did that is we had worked multiple times with both of those firms and those investors and was very clear to them on, I'm not going to use any of this money. And it's a very hard, easy thing to say, hard discipline to have until we start to get this to work. So for the next year plus, I didn't pay for office space. We worked out of a gym for free. When we didn't have uh, room for that, then we uh, bummed office space from CRV, worked out of their office space until we grew so big that we took over the whole office space. And it just kept bumming its way. We wouldn't buy a, dom- a proper domain name. That's why we would call Drift, D-R-I-F-T-T dot com because I was too cheap to buy the domain name. Come on. It was a year and a half later, I bought Drift dot com, the proper spelling, because I was just so cheap. I was insanely cheap. I would not spend a dollar until we started to get things working. Why are you doing that? That's the way that I've always done it because I don't, to me, I'm kind of conservative on spending any money until we start to see something happening. And even then it's very slow. And I was telling you that story about Slootman was, he was trying to get us to like start spending, start hiring salespeople. And then John McMahon later really like helped us figure out how to like think about hiring where I was too cautious to be like, Oh, let's hire one more salespeople, Mm -hmm. one, one salesperson, two, three, one at a time. Mm -hmm. For me, I'm just, I never want to run out of money. You know, my first company that I started was in post bubble 2000, November of 2000, I started that company and you know, we had to lay off people twice through, you know, right after nine 11 that year. And it was just brutal. I was like 20 something years old and I was laying off people that had families and whatever and they didn't have it. It wasn't like today. They didn't, get they didn't get jobs for over a year, these people that I laid off, right? The market was totally different. And so like, I think that still weighs on me. Yeah, And so I, I don't want to be in that
1: situation. Did yet. you grow up poor? Yeah, very poor. Mm-hmm. And just your mom raised you?
0: Uh, my dad was in and out, but yeah, largely my mom raised me. My mom immigrated here from Ecuador and basically work from home to support us
1: like that feeling that you have as a kid i just don't know if that ever goes away doesn't
0: you know for like me that you're it a poor kid yes i still to this day despite all the, despite <laughs> yeah this, yeah, this, yeah these trappings yeah i still feel like this, this is the first time in my life that i've actually like spent some money you know before that i would not spend anything
1: I ask because for Ray, mm-hmm. isn't it weird talking about the company yeah, with a name that? Yeah, it is. Like that, that was funny when you said yeah. it. Um, like. <laughs> don't you think, having done this so many times again, you're still going to be the poor kid in the Bronx that is 100%. very judicious mm-hmm. and scared yeah. of being with nothing again?
0: Thousand mm-hmm. percent. And that drives me. The fear drives me.
1: And then don't you think that people are going to have to bash you over the head again with like, dude- you have it. Like, you got to go. It's time.
0: That's happened every single time. Every, every time. single company. It's just like, let's go. You hear it from investors, you know, that I've had, but they're like, discount that because, you know, I don't want to, like, burn through money. But then you hear it through operators, and they're like, you got to go. It's time.
1: Between now and typing on a keyboard, like coding. hmm First of all, are you going to code anything?
0: <laughs> no, I haven't coded a long time. You're done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. your glory not, days are going bu- yeah, yeah. past you. I'm not code. I, I, think I hack. I'm very deep in the creation process. Everything from the branding, the marketing, the product itself, the design of the product, all of that stuff. But I'm not like hands on keyboard anymore actually creating.
1: How long, if you had to guess, between your commitment process, again, like let's say today's the day. hmm and the first lines of code being written. How long do you see that process taking to unfold?
0: In the next you know, 60 days, for sure. Pretty quick. Yeah, 100%. It would be quicker if I had the team already together.
1: And are you going to parallel process fundraising? Are you going to do this differently than Drift? Have you thought about like, hey, I'm going to bootstrap it again and then take money that I don't need? Or <laughs> do you have
0: a... Uh, it's probably going to work out that way. You know, I'm going to bootstrap it to start the team. And... The answer to all questions is always, it depends, right? It depends. We can delay it or we can, if the right partner comes, someone that we've known. For us, last company, it's been people that we've known. That we're we giving with. all
1: these caveats because every fucking venture firm is going <laughs> to listen to this. And this is your way of saying, don't bother. Oh
0: my God. So the right partner, ideally someone we know, comes along and knows that the way that we operate and that we're going to like destroy a lot of things before we find what it is. And again, a lot of people say they're okay with that, but as you know, in reality, it's very different, right? They get panicked. And so we had amazing partners at Drift. And so with people like that, yeah, sure.
1: When you were at HubSpot, you spent, what, like three and a half years there? Yeah, like four years. Yeah, around that. Right before the IPO, mm-hmm. you left? Yeah. Um, left at the IPO, yeah. You left at the IPO. Mm-hmm. You were the CTO. CPO,
0: Chief CPO. Product Officer. Okay. Yeah. But I ran engineering and product and...
1: Similar design. to this feeling that everybody has now of like, damn, DC's been out the game for a while. At that <laughs> point, did a lot of people say like, damn, DC's like working for someone else? Like, yeah. DC's like not the CEO? Yeah. That must have surprised you too. I never
0: thought I would do it because I sold companies before that, that one, and I never went along. I was never going to do it. And for some reason, I did it and I didn't think I would last that long, but then I burned the boats there because I basically decided we were going to rewrite everything and turn over 100% of the team. And so You
1: came in, rewrote 100% everything. Every single the thing. The entire code base.
0: Not one iota left. And how not much one re- machine, not one. How anything. much
1: revenue did we have
0: at that point? Uh. 80 million,
1: something like that. 80 so 70, million. 70, yeah. And like you that. rewrote
0: the code base 100%. of HubSpot. 100%. We had thousands of customers. You know, it was just a disaster. And you
1: fired the entire team. Entire team. The whole engineering team. The whole product team.
0: Engineering, product design.
1: Everything. <laughs> Did you know no. when the acquisition happened no. that you were going to do this? No f- way. Had you known, there's no way you- <laughs> No way. No right? way.
0: Yeah, it was a miracle that it, we pulled it off and it was just an amazing run, amazing team, amazing, you know, founders and investors, Darmesh and Brian, amazing. And the investors were amazing. And the board, the board was amazing because they all had our back in doing it. You know, it was an insane thing to pull off, but we had to do it. There was no way out. We were scaling like this, but you know, what we saw immediately was like, if we didn't do this, we were going to flatline or go down because the churn was starting to like catch up to us. The churn was coming heavy. We were selling our way out of churn, but it was coming. So it was the right thing to do. It was brutal. I had lots of funny nicknames that I was given you know, for going through there. One of them was uh, Don Corleone. Oh, my God. <laughs> and just like leveled and brought in a whole new team, hired hundreds of people and uh, rebuilt everything. It was amazing. And most of that team, the thing that I love the most is most of that team is still there.
1: When you went to Brian and Mm Dormesh, did you go to them and be like, we have a problem?
0: I think I went to the board first because the board saw it more. Okay. They recognized the problem more. And so they were the advocates.
1: Through using churn as their mechanism or lens? Yeah. Evaluation. And then there was
0: some independent, this guy Andy Payne and Gail Goodman, who was running Constant Contact at that point, were more product focused and they could see by digging, when they would dig in, and, uh, as well as David Scott from Matrix, when they would dig in, they were like, there's a problem here. Right. And, The company didn't realize to what extent until we like dove in and like looked deep and it was like big problems. It was really, really hard to turn over that team that hard. But the thing that was the saving grace was none of that team had worked on the product that the customers were using. The product the customers were using had originally been built by contractors. And this team that was there was had been stuck in this failed loop of trying to rebuild it and it never worked. So that made it easier because once I found out that no one who was there actually knew how to operate the software or the servers or the machines or anything that was running all of the customers, 5,000 customers, no one knows how to run this. And it's like, okay, get rid of this, go in here. This is the disaster. We got to rebuild all of it. It wasn't like we rebuilt it one for one because we had to like beyond expand it, right? We also built a CRM platform from scratch. We built everything we built from scratch. You know, like the stuff that we rebuilt there was just like a fraction of what HubSpot is today.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. And how long did the rebuild process take?
0: It came in waves where it probably took two years to complete, but it came in waves. The first thing that we did was there was not really an email or marketing automation system there. So we built one. Within the first phase of it was three months we built that, which was a miracle. And it had to be at the point that Mike Volpe, who was the CMO at the point, he was using Exact Target. He wasn't even using HubSpot. We had to convince him to cancel the Exact Target contract renewal that was coming up. So our system had to be of that level. And we did that in three months. And we had a celebration. He had a cake. He did it. He canceled the contract. That was phase one. And then we kept going. Every three months, we were taking out entirely new systems. We built a CRM in three months.
1: Did you have to convince Brian and Darmesh that this was the right move?
0: Uh, yes and no. I mean, I'd say not as much as you think, because I think they had heard it from the board. And also Brian, I think had a great style of leadership in that we all ran our business units. Roberge ran sales, Volpe ran marketing. For
1: you, it would have been the only way for this to work.
0: Yes. If he was any, a typical normal leader, a little bit more hands-on, I would have been gone day two. We would meet only once a month as a management team. I didn't, there was no meetings in between. Once a month. Once a month. We had this thing called the HubSpot Exact Leadership Meeting. We had it once a month. It was nine-hour meeting, but uh, that's all that we met.
1: And there was no updates in the interim
0: Mm -mm. sales updates were happening every day, but from product, no. But we created our own system of updates, but we didn't have... There was no, hey, you got to update me at this frequency, you got to do this. But
1: like, you're not like that as a CEO, are you? No.
0: (laughs) I wish I was like like, that. You're (laughs) f***ing in the weeds. I'm in the weeds. I wish I was like that. Do you? In some ways, I wish it was a little bit more like that, but I'm not like that. But he was... Really good at that. Yeah, he's and almost I think he like
1: scaled. It's almost like a Buddhist Zen. Yes, like it's yeah. like a Phil Very Jackson. Same. Like Phil Jackson. Totally, you nailed it. That's yeah. who I would compare it to.
0: Like yeah. a Phil Jackson kind of thing. And we all did it. And it, it's yeah, not to say like it was a, easy. You're more of
1: a pain in the ass, Pat Riley. Yes. More,
0: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, And not to say he can't. That Buddhist, that uh, Phil Jackson can't be a royal pain in the ass sometimes. Totally. But yeah, but like left us to do our things. We had clear goals, and they were insane goals. And as long as we were hitting them and we were on pace.
1: Nothing. And when you saw the gravity of the task in front of you, it's basically starting a company again. Oh, beyond. It's worse. It's
0: worse. Beyond. We had thousands of customers. The one big system that we had to port over was the hosted. You know, all these customers, five thousand customers, hosted their website on HubSpot, and they had the hacked this thing for many years. Meaning the customers. So we had to port every one of those customers' websites over to new systems. All of them, 100%, as well as marketing automation, CRM, blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. It was hard. But I think the, one, the thing that was amazing was that the sales, marketing, service teams, support teams at HubSpar were all 1,000%. We were in 1,000% alignment. I paired every single one of our engineers and product people and designers with a leader in within the sales, support, services, and uh, marketing organizations. They had total accountability because of that. And because of that being transparent like that, they had our back. They supported us. It was totally unified. And so we were doing it together. It was not just us building a product because we had to deal with customers and the marketing team was helping us. Sales team was helping us. And the, when I started to turn over the team in the beginning, you know, Brian was like, Oof. and everyone was like, oh, I don't know about this Guys started to churn through the team. Sales reps in the hallways. High five me. Finally, someone's doing something. Wow. They saw it first. Yeah. The people on the ground, support people were like, yes. Yeah. Thank you. Marketing people were like, thank you. Not the leaders, the individual contributors. Yeah. Yes, finally. Yeah. And so they had our back. Those individual sales reps and service people, they were like our fuel. They were the people that were like, finally, we're going to fix this. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And why didn't you just like go at that point, put your hands in the air Say, so, f- it. Surrender. I'm just gonna, well, I'm just going to do my own thing. <laughs> yeah, because I had hired the people in. So
0: now it was my people, yeah. my team. Yeah, I had gotten rid of the existing people and we were kind of like half pregnant and moving people, customers over. So I was like, in my mind, I was like, I broke it. Now I have to fix it. Yeah, like it's your it, commitment. It's my commitment. Yeah. And, you know, even before going in, I had known most of the board members, Scott, Larry Bonnet, General Catalyst, et cetera, Pac at Sequoia. And so I was committed to them and I was committed to the team and our customers. And so I was like, that's what I was playing for.
1: For some reason, I remember when we were walking, I thought that the timing of you leaving was odd. Mm-hmm. Were you there for IPO day?
0: No, I left a week before.
1: Why? Uh, can you talk about it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Is yeah, it awkward? No, yeah. no, no, it's not
0: awkward. It's just, it's funny, uh, in retrospect, cause it's funny in that it's like, um, you know, it's like most entrepreneurs, by the uh, way,
1: you've never taken a company public at that point, no, correct? No, never. You've never been to the no. stock exchange. You've never no, done no, that no. part of the journey. Yeah. Yeah.
0: You know what it was? It's like, I don't, maybe you can relate to this. I cannot ever feel, maybe this is what's led me to be an entrepreneur. I feel that I'm trapped. You know, I can never feel trapped. You know, I've done a lot of this stuff for growth, but and but really to have optionality and to be feel free to have this level of freedom. When we were in the filing process of going public, you know, I had never really sat and thought like, how much longer will I stay? Will I go through the IPO? Will I not go to the IPO? I had some conversations with some bankers and some people, like basically telling me that, okay, if we go public, you can't leave for eighteen months.
1: Right. You have a new set of handcuffs after going public.
0: And I was like, What? And I was already feeling like I was coming towards and, you know, we had shipped everything. you the, seen the was, mission through. We, the mission was through. And then it was really stupid in that it was really a conversation or set of conversations around someone telling me, you can't leave. You're here. 18 months. I was like, boom, switch went off my head. Up until that day, I had not really thought about how much longer I had. Switch went off and I was like, I'm out. Right then and there. I have to go. Immediately conversation. I have to go. I can't do this. It's too late. We already filed. And then I was like, oh my God, panic. Uh, <laughs> pure panic. <laughs> and what happened was the, we filed in the summer and there was a pullback in the market in that year, in that summer. And so we removed, we pulled the filing. The minute we pulled the filing, I went back. We didn't know when we were
1: going to refile. Oh, and the market soft, softened. Yeah, the market
0: had softened. We pulled back the filing. So I went.
1: Meaning back. you weren't listed because you were listed as an officer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That would have screwed up the whole filing. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And I was a significant shareholder. And so I was like, uh, media conversation. And So we had those conversations. I had them with Darmesh and Brian and then the board. Not easy. Everything on paper was great. And the team was great. The company was great. Everything was awesome. Like, it was one of those things, like situations that you get in that you're like, why am I doing this? To everyone else, anyone looking at a textbook would be like, you know how great this is? You know, to this day, I still see our old general counsel and some other members that are, of the exec team. They're like, do you know how much f-ing money you left? They're like, do you want, they're like, I can't believe you. You left. know, right? Yes, I know. Yeah. But, uh, they're like, what you could, how did you it leave? You like
1: doubled your net worth. Beyond. Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> well beyond that. But I was like, I cannot say.
1: Does that sting? Or are you, or no. would you have regretted more than anything selling, literally selling your soul?
0: Yeah. No, i made the right choice. It was the right choice. And so for me, yes. Did I look at, you know, I hired some people in. People going on my team, going to, you know, uh, New York Stock Exchange, like taking pictures. Yeah, that looks cool. Like, oh, yeah, that would have been cool. But I could not ever operate in this way of feeling trapped.
1: Yeah, I do relate. Like, (laughs) I I get it. The irony is that on this show, most people, when they're done, after they've seen their career through, what they want to do is my job. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. (laughs) Like, like they want to go do my job, which is like the in air quotes, kind of like sail into the sunset job, Mm -hmm. which is atypical for me to be in this job, because the point of being in this job is to draw on your decades of experience (laughs) to advise entrepreneurs, Yeah, right? Mm -hmm. And what I tell them generally is if you are somebody where the voices in your head Mm -hmm. cannot be quieted, Mm -hmm. these things exacerbate that. This idea of advising Mm -hmm. or doing art stuff, Mm -hmm. it actually creates more of a cognitive dissonance Mm -hmm. between your current state and your desired future Mm -hmm. state. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I really relate. And the problem is that the opportunity cost gets higher and higher Mm -hmm. the deeper in that you get. Mm -hmm. And once you're in really deep, then this is what I tell people like, once you're on the dark side, it's very hard to come back. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And I tell, yes. so I tell, I tell yeah. operators all the time, yeah. like if you want to go into venture, whether that's in an operating partner role like I'm doing yeah. or as an investor, mm-hmm. make sure you're done yeah. because it saps it from you, Does yeah. that makes sense. No, you know? it's
0: exactly why I, you know I thought about doing it when I left HubSpot. I had some great opportunities to do it and I didn't do it for the exact reason that you mentioned was like, I sat down and I was like, I'm not done. There's no way
1: Sequoia or GC didn't call you and be like, come on, come on, (laughs) come on, DC. Yeah,
0: I was like, I'm not, no comment, but uh, I'm not done. And so I was like, maybe after the next one, maybe after Drift. But now I'm here after Drift and I'm like, oh.
1: I was just having this conversation with, do you know a guy named Shlomo Kramer? Do you know what this is? No. Exactly. Okay, so this guy started Checkpoint Software. Oh, yeah. Took it public, then started Imperva, took it public. Mm Mm-hmm. Started a company called Cato Networks, doing 100 million of ARR, going to take that public. was the founding investor of Palo Alto Networks, what? the founding investor of Gong, mm. the founding investor of da 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 da. And he's still at it. He's still at it. And I was asking. I was with him last week and I'm like, Shlomo, like, what are you going to do after this? And he's like, I'm done. And I'm like, no, you're not. No, you're not. You have, like a, you have a disease, disease Yeah, You're, you're not metal. done yeah. I told him And he's like no I'm supposed to be done I can't keep doing this mm-hmm. And I'm like yeah you're supposed to be done but, to. but he Similar to you His relationship To that person was dread mm-hmm. He dreaded The idea of the person That was done mm-hmm. And I told him similar to what you just described I'm like dude you're going to take this company public You're gonna spend some time Mm -hmm. on your jet, doing your thing, (laughs) and then eventually, you're gonna be like, what am I doing? Yeah, What am I doing? Mm -hmm. And he's like, dude, I'm not young. Mm -hmm. He's coming up with all these excuses, which he's not young, he is not a young cat. And I'm like, dude, you're gonna keep going. That is why, unfortunately, or fortunately, you guys are great entrepreneurs, Mm -hmm. because you can't teach that feeling. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? This idea that you have to go bigger. That just is in you. That's <laughs> yeah. just, there's nothing pushing you to do that. No. It's just this feeling, like I'm saying, like the Tony Hawk thing, like you've got to get the next trick mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. for the sport of it, Yep. just for the pure love of the mm-hmm. game. Mm-hmm. And I think that's um, psychotic and commendable.
0: Yeah. Well, I always say that, you know, for an entrepreneur, if you start one company, it's maybe you were naive, maybe you did it, uh, two companies questionable, three or more companies certifiable. So mm-hmm. I've long been like Shlomo in the certifiable camp once you get into that phase it's like okay what is behind this person's need to keep proving themselves right and that's what you know tony hawk or any other example it's like they're proving themselves over and over mm-hmm. why do you have that need what is that drive what's the fire behind that like what's going on like what do you what do you have left to prove but there's this insatiable kind of need this fire to like keep proving yourself
1: yeah but you know what's funny is I find the like um, the venture world, the stuff that you're doing today, mm-hmm. there's something very addicting mm-hmm. about that feeling mm-hmm. of the status games that you like. You yeah. get wrapped up in this shit. For sure. Very easily. Mm-hmm. And look, in some ways, it's very superficial, but in other ways, it's like, yeah, I work at Kleiner Perkins so I can talk to anybody that I want mm-hmm. to. I like that feeling. Mm-hmm. I like the feeling of being able to learn from people that I otherwise wouldn't have. Mm-hmm. People want, in some cases, things from me, which is why I can talk to them yeah. and why I get in front of them. Mm-hmm. I'm fine with that relationship. It's okay. That's a quid pro quo yeah, that I've okay. come to accept. Mm-hmm. You, know? you lose all of that. It's gone. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something visceral mm-hmm. and scary about that. Mm-hmm. I think there's something... I think that the reason you pick the name Mm -hmm. is because the minute that you actually commit, then all of that other stuff has to fade away. Mm -hmm. Like there's no decision. Because a rational decision, these trade-offs are psychotic. Mm -hmm. And it's way worse for you than most. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so I think that the more you force yourself into this vacuum, the more you don't have a decision to make. Mm Does that make sense? Yeah,
0: totally. That's what it is. That's what I'm doing. That's what these artificial things that I'm doing It's taking the decision away. It's like there's no other choice. I'm just going to do this. And I think this next phase of starting the company is the scariest phase. It doesn't matter how many times you've started a phase, but that phase of like you go from feeling like something, you know, being at a certain level to like you're back at the bottom again. We've done this every time. When we started Drift, it was like, we just went public with HubSpot This says, have all these people working for us. Next day, start Drift. Um, next day? Yeah, the next day.
1: You started Drift the day after you quit yeah. HubSpot?
0: Yeah, the, all of my companies, I've not taken one more than one week between starting companies. And don't Ever. you think maybe, Ever. maybe, yeah. deep down, yeah. it's because
1: of this feeling? Because you don't want to have a decision to make.
0: Yes, yeah. It's just like, next day, we got to start again. We started the company next day. We are going back to people that have worked for us, that we've known that were customers. And all of a sudden we went from here with them to the bottom. And we were just like all looking at ourselves like, what the f-? I'm like begging for a meeting begging for someone to reply to my email, begging no matter how many, this four companies in, you go back to the beginning. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. You're irrelevant again. Yes. And that's like the scary part of like starting over. And it's just like, you're literally starting over. Yeah. Okay. We're going to start from the bottom Yeah. and nobody cares anymore Yeah. about
1: you. You must be thinking about that. I like, especially since you've had this break now, living in Mm -hmm. New York, doing this thing, you must be, that must be a scary feeling, that feeling of irrelevance.
0: A hundred percent. Just like, like That must be the, daunting. Yes, that's the scariest feeling, going And
1: especially, back. like, your fiancé has never seen mm-hmm. this, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. You're probably, most of the friends that you've made, you're not even going to see them anymore.
0: No, it's all gone. That's what I've been warning about. It's like, all that stuff is like, there's no more time for any of this. It has to be 1,000% the company.
1: And do you ever think, like, okay, how can I have my cake and eat it too here? remote. maybe that's the remote thing
0: maybe only maybe in a little in the fantasy version, but in reality I, I don't know how to operate that way. The remote version is definitely part of that. Yeah. It's a fantasy yeah of like, oh, maybe I can like work remotely and work in my office here and like build a company and it's like, no. yeah, I don't know how to do it
1: the executive leadership meeting at HubSpot, the like nine hour meeting mm-hmm. kind of lives in some form of infamacy, good or bad. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that? Can you talk about that meeting? Oh my
0: God. It's, yeah. It's it's brutality. War. War, war zone.
1: on. So every functional leader comes in, right? Yes. It's the whole executive team. Mm-hmm. So you and Robert, Halligan, Darmesh, yes. whoever, whatever. Yeah. Volpi, et cetera. Volpe. Yeah. yeah. So there's like eight of you.
0: More. There's probably like, 12 of us given all the different people that are there and then what happens is
1: and no one knows from the last month what the f- is going on in your respective organization they
0: know, uh, in mine less so in marks we would get daily updates on mm-hmm. sales so we were tracking that so we kind of had a uh, have an idea of what's going on and then we we basically we start with sales we go to sales then we do marketing service etc and we're doing these presentations in to say that, Mark's decks would, the sales deck would have 50 to 80 slides, you know, of just charts, cohort analysis, blah, 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 blah. And we're going through all this stuff. And it is brutality, right? That's when Phil Jackson turns into, you know, an assassin. Yeah. You know, and it's brutal and it's screaming and this and that. Actually screaming. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. I almost left. It was mostly always directed at sales (laughs) service sometimes marketing, but sales and service mostly, it was very, very intense meeting. The rest of the time, it was like this, it was always this dichotomy of like that meeting, the way we operate as a leadership team was very, very intense. But then to the rest of the company, it was like, you know, we were in a Willy Wonka factory. Everything is great. Everything's awesome. This is great. There's no edge here and whatever. And in there, it was like all edge. I remember one time, there was only one time that it turned on me and I was like, I'm walking out the door. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, no way. Why? I don't know. Did you not take
1: the heat or you think they were wrong? Probably both. Yeah. Like I was never. Well, I think it's this idea of like, who the fuck? Why are you telling me what to do? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's just like this righteous independence. Yes.
0: Yes. That, then that would have driven me to always lead, you know, a company of just like someone telling me what to do. Like what? Mm -hmm. No way. Maybe they were right. I don't know. I can't remember, but I was just like, I'm out of here. And then obviously I got talked back into coming in, but it was
1: it got that it was that intense.
0: Yeah, I walked out of the building.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you walked out of the meeting. See Gone.
0: You. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, when I tell you, it's in these meetings were intense. They were crazy. I do not even know how to describe. You like
1: you get your body ready. Yeah, You're ready. Go good. Get a workout. Yeah. in.
0: Sometimes it was nine hours. Sometimes it was it would go to dinner, so it was like twelve
1: hours. It was just like nonstop. And then after the meeting. Mm-hmm. Was it intense? Would they come after you, or would they come after your idea, or was it all of both? It? Both. There was no separation of church no. and state. Where they afterwards can cancel like f- afterwards. <laughs> Yeah. You guys could kiss and make up immediately because they were attacking your idea, not you.
0: No, what there was afterwards it was just kind of like uh, group therapy. People get together and be like, console the whoever got it last. You yeah, know? just like, it's cool, man. It was more like that. Just consoling someone after a battle.
1: Yeah. And would you run a meeting like that?
0: I've never run a meeting like that.
1: Do you think there's positives to it?
0: Yes. I think the trick that was there that I could never replicate was that we got out all the intensity and anger and, you know, passion out in that meeting, left everything there. And then there was no passive aggressiveness after that. There was no issues after. Everyone was okay after that. And it didn't bleed. This is the trick that I never learned, that it would never bleed into the rest of the organization. The organization only saw sometimes some of the directors, senior people would be in that meeting and so they would see parts of it. and so. But the rest of the team was just like in this like everything is awesome. You know, mm-hmm. like everything is awesome. Lego movie. Whereas like I think the way that I ran meetings was I was more like I didn't want to embarrass. I don't embarrass people in front of other people, but one-on-one. I'm yeah, super praise intense. in public and criticism yeah. in private. So that's what I would do. But then, you know, you don't get it all out and you don't get the osmosis from that. You know, you don't get the accountability of other team members seeing that you are holding this person to task even though you are, in my version, doing it behind the scenes. So I think it's a lot more efficient to do it that way. But I never figured that
1: out. When we were on our walk, most of the walk was spent talking about, I think it was 2019, Mm -hmm. which was the year leading up to COVID. No. Right? Is that right? Mm-hmm. crazy year for Drift. Yeah. Can you talk about that year? And by the way, crazy year for you.
0: Yeah, 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 crazy year.
1: Do you mind talking no, about it? No, it was... If it's okay.
0: Yeah, that was probably the hardest time for me professionally, personally. You know, I was getting divorced. It was like three things. Getting divorced, it was like we were at the height just like of, you know, I think it was like the beginning of cancel culture, like a bunch of stuff going on. You know, I felt like we had gotten into a place with the company where there was like so many people were like having this like glass door craziness of like, mm-hmm. oh, these leaders don't care about diversity. They don't care. You know, I mm-hmm. got questioned so many times on like in our open company meetings about like, do you even care about diversity? I'm like, uh, what? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like since the day that I've been born, yeah, like like I, I, you, <laughs> you, <laughs> you looked at me, me? Yeah, <laughs> like what? Yeah. But I, I felt like not only us as a company, but just like, all the companies that i was talking to at that point i was like are we in like peak frenzy you know like peak people were like so angry and like so frenzied and bringing that to work because you know we had encouraged this whole like hold self at work i had never grown up in anything like that worked in that kind of environment mm-hmm. and you know i would think back to past companies whether it was hubspot or others i'm like where did that company go? Mm-hmm. Like, where did that time go? Like, that was just one company ago. Mm-hmm. And now we're like, we're in a different, totally mm-hmm. different world. And so, and we're, you know, being yelled at for anything. And so it was like divorce. It was that. It was like deciding whether we were going to do a growth round. We had just raised a series C from Sequoia. Mm-hmm. And so, like, should we take more money? It was like all this stuff was because happening. Because the business was inflecting? Yeah, it was growing. You it know. was growing. Yeah, it was growing at that point. But we were moving and transitioning into the enterprise. Mm-hmm. So that was hard culturally within because we had grown up as a high velocity inside sales kind of product led kind of motion. And we were moving towards most of our customers and most of our future being in the enterprise. And so moving the entire company that way, right? And so from a hiring, from a people standpoint, from a product standpoint, and so we were kind of like in that middle of, do we burn the boats on Mm -hmm. the self-serve business? Do we go in there? Things are still growing. We just raised around. It's amazing. But then at the same time, dealing with all these social issues, dealing with personal issues, like all of it happening at once. And I I felt like that was, for me, the hardest time, for sure, uh, operating a company.
1: And do you think that pressure is what led you to sell?
0: Partially, 100%. Do you regret it? No. I thank whoever every Tur- day.
1: By the way, turns out, I mean- now Every you day. Look, now you look like a f***ing genius.
0: Genius, yeah. So I, does, it so it does was Nick a-
1: Mada from GameSight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: yes. It was a battle to sell the company with the board. It was not easy.
1: But don't you, at this point- But at
0: this point, they say, all of them, 100%. That was amazing. Best thing ever.
1: You, so you still don't control, you can't make, even now, unilateral decisions on things like that? Oh, you mean at the company? Sell?
0: Not really. You need board. You need the board to go along with it, right? We could- You don't want to burn your we partners. Could, yeah, we don't want to burn them. Yeah, we could have, actually, between myself and Elias, but- i didn't want to burn them, and uh, I wanted them to go along with it,
1: and they're stoked now
0: beyond beyond because we sold in october of twenty one October November of twenty one that was by december January it was
1: do you think going over up, up market was a miscalculation
0: sort of yes. was everybody
1: telling you to go up market hundred percent
0: especially all all everyone in sales, everyone you know from that enterprise side obviously that's what they know
1: oh or tam's not big enough
0: yes go bigger the reason i think it was a mistake was it did some it changed kind of the company in one big way which is before we went enterprise our sales team our service team you know every single person in the company lived their entire workflow their entire day was in drift because they were all inbound sales focus Right, So they were dealing with people that were actually coming to our website, dealing with them. We They were never taught to demo. They were never taught anything about the product because they lived in the product. And the main way that they sold was like, hey, let me show you how I use it every day. And that's what led us to being able to get in a place when we were really growing fast of like getting a, a new sales rep, hitting full quota attainment within 30 days. Boom, they were going on. And it was like like, like magic, right? And so that's when the outsiders were like, got to hire more salespeople like this is crazy you get into to full quote attainment in a month it's insane it was because the secret was they were selling what they were using every day the minute that we moved to enterprise mm-hmm. the typical things happen we brought in people who no longer lived in the product meaning the enterprise sales reps the enterprise sales reps needed more people oh we need someone who to demo for us we need someone to onboard for us we need someone to do XYZ for us. We need someone to train enable us. You know, like all the all the work, all the stuff that you've heard of. And it just slowed everything down and disconnected the entire go-to-market team from the actual product. They had to have rely on translators and other people to actually demo the product. That really slowed things down. I think that was In my mind, the wrong move. And we had there was so many downstream repercussions that, you know, we're still, you know, we still deal with to this day because of that move to the
1: enterprise. In your gut, did you think it was the wrong idea?
0: Yes. But the data looked right to move to the enterprise. Meaning
1: there was early signals up market that you were getting pulled there.
0: Yeah, because we were getting pulled hard in that over there. And uh, we were getting pulled hard there. The churn was amazing, right? Because the the expansion opportunities. uh, So the net churn was amazing. Like everything was amazing. The logos were amazing. We were getting pulled by all the biggest companies you could imagine. The happiness was amazing. Like everything was great. And whereas like when you're in a self-serve kind of model, there's naturally a high churn model. And even the mid-market models, a little bit higher churn model. So everything looked great. And then all of the wise people that we looked up to now, in hindsight, they were all enterprise people, you know, we're all pointing in that direction. So, like, the people who had done it at a larger scale than I had ever operated were all like, go that way. The data was like, go that way. The customers were like, go that way. My gut was like, mm, I don't know if this is the right move.
1: I yeah. think this is the wrong right move. You know? Yeah. And you must have been kicking yourself because you increased your burn. Like crazy. And that's like, Going back to our earlier conversation, your f***ing nightmare. Nightmare. That's like the one thing you're trying to avoid.
0: Yeah. So all of a sudden, there were a bunch of nightmares. Nightmare was burn increase, which is my nightmare, which I avoid all the time. The next nightmare was now all of a sudden, there's too many touch points with the customer. Like no one has accountability anymore. The way that I run companies, there's always this idea of like, we have like extreme autonomy, but we have extreme accountability because, and our accountability comes from our customers. We measure everything from a customer term. Now all of a sudden, no one's responsible because it's like, well, how many touch points are there with a customer? Well, there's the SDR. There's the sales rep. There's the onboarding person. There's the account manager. There's the customer service person. There's the support agents. There's the, I'm missing other people. There's the people that demoed them. There's like 10 people that they're, you know, 10 different people that a customer is dealing with throughout their life cycle and no one's accountable, right? Like it's like all these people. And so that increases the burn, but it also disconnects us from the customer, which is like the way that we operated. So we had all these nightmares come up. Uh, we had a, you know, a shift in kind of the culture is probably the wrong word, but you know, just a different type of person, you know, that we hired on purpose that was very different than the way that we operate, the way that we feel like we like to build teams and so like all of that stuff were like mini nightmares happening at once and they all went against you know it's easy to see now in hindsight they all went against our core kind of like way that we operate you know the way that i believe to operate a company to build a product all these things were like direct conflict with those with that
1: how do you distinguish between a good idea and a great idea i ask because i have a feeling that we talk about all of the good ideas that you were You know, should I buy a company, should I be an investor? But from a product perspective, as Mm -hmm. you start thinking about going into the desert, because a good idea Mm -hmm. is a very scary thing because it can set you off deeper into the desert. It's like a mirage of the city. Yeah, 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 But actually it's setting you further away from water. Mm -hmm. And saying no to good ideas is incredibly difficult. Mm -hmm. The more you can say no to those, the more the great idea becomes clear. Mm -hmm. Or the more focus that you can put on the one or two Great things. How do you think about that?
0: It's. Re- I mean, do you agree with that? By the way, I agree with that. But it's really hard. It's a great kind of thing to like think about, like framework. But it's really hard to like distinguish, like when you're operating, what a good versus great idea is. You know, for me, because of that, we rely so heavily on what we're hearing from, and we sell B two B, so it's easier from our initial customers and from the market, mm-hmm. and so you know, we're really looking for when there's that natural kind of pull that's happening. And it's so subtle, like there's no like clear measurement on it or a clear way. But when those customers are starting to need us, pull us more. And at the same time, I can see where we're getting pulled the possibility of this becoming a big market because there's a set of trends mega trends that are kind of like leading towards kind of a resegmentation of the market a new w- new way of looking at the market in the case of drift it was the growth of cell phones led to the growth of text messaging so that led to chat and text conversational kind of interfaces becoming more normal where before the growth of the cell phones that rapid growth uh, that was not normal right so text-based conversational based interfaces have been around since Mm -hmm. i've been in this world which is a very long time but they were kind of a geeky weird thing it also led to the growth of slack and all these other things grew at the same time because this became a normal pattern Mm -hmm. where slack being you know an irc type clone in the beginning irc has been around for 25 years like it didn't grow because it was not, it was just for geeks at mm-hmm. the time and it was not a normalized pattern. So that was one big thing that was happening. There was set, another set of mega trends that were happening that were like, okay, we think this is going to create a big market. We're getting pulled a little bit in this area. So we think this is a great idea. We killed probably four different versions of Drift before mm-hmm. that that existed that were playing around sort of on the edges, but not really in this world. And We'd spent you know a few months building each one of them and then and we had people using them and then we would kill them. Then we would kill them again. I think that's what our Series A, B investors were. Larry and Ezar, CRV and General Catalyst, were always like thought was a good quality that we had, that we were, not, we were willing to kill ideas even though they looked like they had a little bit of traction or they had some pull in them because we didn't think they were great ideas. And so we would just kill them. One and we had that kind of discipline to do that, and it was painful because you know, you tell the customers or the users in our case, or so you tell and you tell the engineers, the product people, the people who spent all this time building it, we're killing it. Mm-hmm. Next, mm-hmm. you know, and everybody cries because they want to throw away the, the code that they wrote or the thing that they designed or they liked using it. And it's like, next, we we'll went move on to the next thing,
1: dude. I appreciate you doing this. I could sit here for hours with you. I wrap these things the same. This one will be interesting. Maybe first question: Is Ray hiring? <laughs> yeah. Are like seriously? If maybe, maybe we'll be. Maybe this episode will come out in a couple of weeks. Maybe okay. less. Maybe yeah. I can push yeah, it. Yeah, Ray is hiring. An What are you hiring for?
0: Engineers, designers. In the beginning. All right. So next six months. All right. Mm-hmm. That's it.
1: That's it. Mm-hmm. If you're a venture capitalist, don't you fucking dare. <laughs> dare. Don't you dare. <laughs> don't shoot there. Don't shoot there. Uh, when you hear the word grit, what do you think of?
0: Uh, my mom, because my mom raised us and she did it with nothing. And so she had the ultimate grit. And so I think because of her, and she worked six and a half days a week. So I learned my grit from her. You know, I modeled after her. And I always think like as hard as I worked in this stuff that we do, like is nothing compared to that.
1: Well said, DC. Thank you. All
0: right. Thank you.
1: That's it. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to come back every Monday morning to listen to a new guest or go back into the archives when we've done more than a hundred episodes. This podcast is a Kleiner Perkins production and the episode was edited by Eric Johnson from Lightning Pod. Thank you all.